edition of Her Story on the Rocks with me, Allie. Normally, I'd be here hanging out with my co-host and we would be drinking while we talk about famous women from history. But today, we are talking to a woman making history. We would like to welcome our very special guest, Olivia Campbell. Olivia is a journalist and writer, and we have invited her to our show to talk about Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. Olivia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, let's see. I have three boys. Um, <laughs> I live outside of Philadelphia, and I've been a journalist for about 15 years now. Um, I got started in journalism. Uh, after I injured myself, I was a dancer. Um, and then I got into arts journalism. And after that, when I started having babies, I decided to go into women's health journalism. Yeah, I saw on your website that you have a master's in scientific writing. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, Johns Hopkins University offers the master's degree in science and health writing. Wow, that's really cool. How does that, how is that different or unique? than like other writing master's degrees? Uh, well, I was looking for something specifically science, scientific, um, science related, science adjacent. Um, uh, this program was great for me because it was part-time evenings. It was for busy parents, working people. Um, so I really appreciated that. Um, and it's, it's different in that it's not an MFA, but it's an MA um, and it's a specialized you know, subject area. So I, I really liked that, those two things. That's really cool because I had, I read that on your website after I read your book. And I think if I had read that first, I would have been like, uh-oh, this book is going to be very like scientific and dry. But the book was not scientific or dry. It was wonderful. So that's great. Um, so I made a cocktail for your book. And obviously, like I said before we started recording, I will send you the recipe. But I tried to make it as white as possible for our lovely Dr. Coates. And obviously, it's named in honor of your book. It's called Women in White. It has two ounces of light rum, a fourth of an ounce of triple sec, a half an ounce of simple syrup, one ounce of lime juice, an egg white, and it's sprinkled on top with cinnamon. So cheers to your book. It sounds delicious. Mm. It smells really good. The cinnamon on top. I was worried I put too much on, but it's actually not terrible. So, yay. Yeah, the cinnamon is very medicinal. It has some really like, immune-boosting properties, so I, I love that. Oh, great. Good. See, by accident. I must, have, I must have been, like, feeding off of you from your book. So, can you set the, the scene for us with female physicians. We obviously all know the name Elizabeth Blackwell. That's widely known. But the story of women in medicine goes back much longer and is much deeper. Can you give us a little bit of details on that? So yes, women have been involved in medicine for since the dawn of time. I mean, since the dawn of civilization, really. Um, there was in ancient Egypt, uh, women healer priestesses, uh, you know, so this goes back all the way. Um, Women have always been midwives, but that wasn't always necessarily considered medicine. Um, I, I don't know if that because they wanted to think it was a women's thing, we're not going to call that medicine. But nevertheless, it is healthcare and something that women have always done, always participated in. Um, and then through 
through the ages, um, men started to realize they wanted to kind of take over this healing business. Um, so, you know, women started to be branded as witches. Um, you were a healer, you were a suspect because you might've been like, this, uh, you know, an odd woman in the, the community who was kind of on the outskirts. Um, so, the, you know, the church wanted to corner the market on medicine um, in the Middle Ages. And so they said, okay, uh, we're going to call all you women witches and we're going to bring you at the stake. And so uh, healing had to kind of go underground a little bit. But there's still um, housewives, there's still women delivering healthcare to their families and their you know, local communities. Um, I just finished a piece for Smithsonian Magazine on these early modern era of uh, if you wanted to have a house, you also had to be able to know how to make medicines. So you were essentially, as a housewife, you were also the family pharmacist in those times. Yeah, and I thought a lot of the, the prologue of your book touched on some really interesting women from the past and how the, the story of medicine was taken, you know, from ancient Egypt up through, like you said, well, women can't do that. You're a witch. Sorry, the church is going to take over from here. So I thought there were a lot of interesting things that you put in there. But this book is mostly, mostly, there's a lot of women in it, but it's mostly centered around um, Elizabeth Blackwell, Lizzie Garrett, or Elizabeth Garrett, and Sophia Jacks Black, I believe, based on my reading. And can you briefly describe their place in society in like Victorian United States and Europe? So basically, if you were a, a lady, if you were you know, a middle to upper class woman, not a working class woman, like working class women, they had to work, right? So that's, we're not really talking about um, those people. Sometimes it was that your husband died and you had to make money, so you weren't necessarily a middle-class woman. But this is mostly talking about the, the upper classes. So um, it was not okay for you to have a job. Uh, your family expected you to, you know, grow up and then live with them until you got a husband and then you went to live with them and you took care of your parents' house and then you took care of your husband's house. And that was pretty much it. It was really an affront to your parents to breaking it to their family uh, you know there was stories of women who were disowned by their family so then they had to go figure out how to make money to go to, to medical school on their own um there's one famous um woman who her mother said she'd rather see her in the uh, insane asylum than in the medical school um <laughs> so it's really and for, for Lizzie Garrett, you know, she told her mom, her mom went like to this huge depression in a room for weeks on end. It was like, oh, this is the end. Why would you do this to me? You're, and her dad was, oh, you're killing your mother, Lizzie. This is just so, so the, the response of family, first of all, was, was going to be bad. <laughs> um, so after that, then you have the society's response to say, um, you know, you're, you're deranged. Women should not be interested in these sorts of things. What are you thinking? You must be like uh, neuter, you're decepting yourself. It basically is the response um, of society at this point. Yeah, and it seemed like uh, there was a lot of similarities and differences between the women in the story. Like Elizabeth, Elizabeth Blackwell went to um, like a male co medical college in the United States, whereas Lizzie was then a physician and a surgeon, and then Sophie or Sophia was like an educational activist that then switched to being turned into a physician. Was there a favorite fact or story about 
one of these women that you loved writing about in the book? Because I personally loved when you were talking about Elizabeth Blackwell in a medical class and she, like the, the male students were voting on like whether or not she could sit in on the anatomy lesson. I thought that was just a really fun little anecdote. Was there anything that you just found to be an interesting tidbit? I was really surprised uh, after I dove into all the research of how many like scenes I was able to recreate. So that that was overall that's what I loved is that I actually have some back and forth conversations that I'm depicting, and which was it's really like the jackpot for historical nonfiction. Um, I think my favorite part is when Sophia is challenging Christensen in the the meeting. They're talking about his assistant and how she's saying that his assistant um, wasn't responsible for sparking this riot or encouraging this riot when they were throwing, you know, rotten food and mud at these women who were trying to get to their exam. Um, and the way that she just like gives as good as she gets, and the her the quick thinking on her feet with the quips. Oh, it's, I'm so jealous of her minds. Is she was, just was not having it. She would not take it from these men. And God, I love her for that. Yeah, and I think that that's a great scene to pick because you also put so eloquently in the book that these women didn't just have to be students. They had to be activists at the same time. And how did that affect them? Did they get burnt out over time? That would crush my spirit, I think. I was thinking about that last night, actually. I was like, I really should have, it's all, it's all 2020 now, but, um, like, their spirit must have been so crushed, so many times. There's, you know, the other students are, like, following them into the streets and saying nasty stuff to them, um, putting nasty notes on the door, and, like, you know, it's just kind of never-ending harassment. It's, like, you know, the one big riot happened for Sophia, and that had to be traumatizing. They tried to push through it and tried to, you know, but what they said about it was it made them kind of see just how, you know, low these, these guys will go. And it made them feel bad that these are future doctors, you know, they were like trying to point it out to the press. It's like, these are the people that are going to be treating you. Why would you want these kind of people that are going to throw mud at these women just for trying to get to an exam? Yeah, it was, it was like scary in some moments. And then also I saw some moments of like, real joy when um i think representation was probably the most important for lizzie when she was like reading these women like these women pamphlets or newspapers in europe and then elizabeth blackwell's on her like speaking tour and she's like yes that's what i want to do how how important was it for people to see these women out and about doing this career that's it they had to be an example. They couldn't just, you know, quietly go about their business going to school. They're, they're making, a, a, you know, a huge scene just by existing and, you know, by trying to attend school that, you know, newspaper people are following them around. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine how, what it must have been like to be under this microscope, to be this example, to have to be perfect, the pressure. And that caused a lot of arguments within the movement of, you know, they're trying to decide how you know we have the same goal we want women to be able to become doctors and not you know be under this kind of scrutiny we want them to be able to go to college without people throwing stuff at them you know how can we accomplish this and this just the, the constant harassment and the, the microscope was it 
just really affected how, you know, the, the inner workings of, of, of pressure was too much. Right. And how much harder was it to be a surgeon for these women? Because I think, I think Lizzie was the surgeon and I think, I don't know the real stats, but I, I'm sure it's even hard for women to be surgeons today. What was it, what made that process different for her? So what really shocked me in my research was really how little education doctors got, especially in the U.S. Like it's from the sound of it in the U.K., they're getting a lot more years of education. Like you, like you're reading about Elizabeth Blackwell. When she starts college is when the, um, the kind of bump up the requirements to, to like a few weeks of college to like a few semesters to, you know, to get an MD. So I didn't really realize that. I think a lot of people don't realize that. Having an MD in 1860 was basically like an undergraduate degree. It's not like what it is now. So, but in Europe, there's the standards are a lot higher. You're going to school for many years. So, most of these women realized that, and they would go to you know get a degree in a women's medical college, and then they would go off to Europe and study extra. You know, they would get that extra. So, I mean, if they had to study more to be a surgeon. Um, Elizabeth Blackwell's sister, Emily Blackwell, was was a surgeon at the, the excuse me, infirmary that she and her sister had in New York. So Elizabeth wanted to be a surgeon, but she um, went blind in one eye. So I mean, it seems like it was a common like desire for these women. It, it wasn't necessarily that much different. Um, like you didn't have to study that much more, unfortunately. Um, but you definitely wanted experience, you know, you, you would want to go study for a few months um, to learn more about surgery. And of course, there's the whole, um, you know, controversy about Lizzie being overzealous with her surgery. You know, she's really into surgery. And, you know, there's that line of representing, you know, someone in a book is, well, I, I want to make sure I'm showing the whole picture here. You know, I like these women. I like what they represent, but I have to tell the whole story. I have to say, well, maybe she was doing surgery a little too much. Maybe she was cutting into people where she shouldn't have been. And she just wanted to get her giant tumors in some museum somewhere to say, oh, look, look what I've done. Um, so she was trying to be a good example of a woman surgeon, you know, to be that you know, something that people can look up to and hold up and say, oh, look, she, this woman can be a surgeon. She's doing a good job. Um, but I think maybe she went a little bit too far sometimes. Like, a lot of people quit her, her hospital because of these things. So, I mean, it was definitely harder because, at least probably uh, as far as society was concerned, because surgery is definitely, like, more gross than, you know, maybe, like, a family physician. So there was, there was that aspect as well. Right. And I mean, speaking speaking of the knowledge, it seemed to me like even th there was like this theme woven through the book, how there was just a really big lack of knowledge in the world of understanding the female body. Like in speaking of STDs and, you know, servants who were being impregnated by their bosses and rape victims and child abandonment in impoverished areas and cervical cancer because nudity was taboo in front of male doctors. It just seemed like there, there was a period of, of this entire time in history where I think you even said that the male doctors during a pelvic exam would not look at what they were doing, they would look at the woman in the eye. That just seems yeah. crazy. I think when we, um, 
you know, eradicated all these women healers, we lost a lot of, you know, natural knowledge of, of women's healthcare. And, and we never really regained that because men took over and they had their own ideas about how women's bodies worked. Um, and they kept trying to say that it was scientific and they were right and that your uterus would fly out of your body if you rode on a train over 50 miles per hour. But, you know, they were wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I just, it, it kind of stunned me too, because one of the things Elizabeth Blackwell was saying was like, I don't just want doctors to know female bodies. I want girls to know their own bodies. How prevalent was it for women to like, not know any, because I, I mean, even this is a stupid example, but <laughs> I've been watching Bridgerton, of course, and the the girls in the show ha, are getting ready to get married and they have no idea what sex is at all. They don't even know how how other women are getting pregnant. Yeah, this was like one of the most radical prescriptions was, you know, we have to teach girls what's going on with their bodies. And that was something that well, I read about a lot of different pioneers. Anne Preston, who I mentioned a couple of times briefly, who was um, worked in Philadelphia. Um, with the first women's medical college there, um, they, they just really wanted the, the girls to have that information. And, and Elizabeth also was advocating for uh, women to put off getting married as long as they could because she saw the stress on your body of constant pregnancy and that, that these women weren't prepared. And so, you know, she was an advocate for it. As long as you could put it off, please do, you know, so spare your body. Because, you know, the idea that just having a uterus is what caused you to get sick is what most doctors would say. And, you know, they couldn't help us, but so much, but, you know, it didn't even occur to the men that maybe it was these tight corsets, maybe it was these super heavy dresses that were causing women to be sick more often. And then, uh, so in come the women doctors and they start doing actual scientific studies and saying, wait a minute, you know, this is what's making us sick. This is what's wrong. Uh, of course, Mary Putnam Jacoby, She's an incredible um, doctor. She starts doing all these like actual scientific studies and saying, "Okay, so men have this theory that um, women can't go to college um, because if they study too hard during their period, then it's going to make them sterile." And so she starts doing actual studies to say, "No, that's, that's not true. This is not happening. You know, you know, women's vigor is absolutely affected by their periods." Um, we can work physically and mentally just as hard, no matter what time of the month it is. And the fact that they had to be refuting this stuff on top of everything else, it's just uh, it's too much. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It's a bit overwhelming. You read it and you're like, wow, this was like a hundred years ago. How is this even true? <laughs> um, so... Tell me a little bit about the research process, because like you said, this is a historic nonfiction. The dialogue was beautiful. I'm sure you had to dig through endless primary sources, and this probably took you forever. Tell me about that. It was a blast, honestly. <laughs> like, going into the archives and touching, like, handwritten letters from these women, it was electrifying. To me like I got to live in these women's lives for you know three years and so they're like in my head right they're, they're just stuck in there and I, I love them um 
but yeah, going, I went to the archives in New York. There's a lot digitized now too, which was awesome. So I didn't have to travel as much as maybe I would have a few years ago, but um, I went up to Columbia and then I took a trip towards the end of the writing process. I took a trip over to London and Edinburgh and dug around in the archives over there. Um, and it was, it was so much fun to be away by myself <laughs> traveling before <laughs> the before times. Yeah, the before times. Oh man, I miss them. Um, yeah, it just it seemed so incredible the the way that this was written, and then especially I think in um, there's like an author's note at the end where you mentioned that Sophia had wanted her papers destroyed, so that was like the hardest part to write. What had happened with that? Why did she want to get rid of her primary um, sources? That's a really interesting question. I don't know why, because she wrote books of her own. She was seemed like a very public, you know, she was a loudmouth. She she was spicy. I love her. Me too. Um, <laughs> she she wrote all kinds of books. So I don't know why necessarily she bought all her letters and stuff destroyed. Luckily, her partner um, wrote a biography of her after she died and included in that biography a lot of basically um, clippings from her letters and um, diary entries. So there is a lot of still like you know, there's a decent amount. It's very curated, clearly. Um, but there, there was some stuff to dig through there. And she did write a lot of stuff for, you know, of her own. So that, that's pretty much all I had to go with. Like if you go, I went to the archive and there was really nothing for her, honestly, which was kind of devastating. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so her partner wrote the biography and then she um, took her own life like right after the book was published. So that's, that's just a sad, sad story. What was your favorite thing to write in the book? Because I know a lot of times when people are writing, they don't write chronologically. And obviously, I, or I think like your, the chapters were set up so nicely because each time I flipped to a new chapter, I felt like I was in the page of a new woman's life or a new set of women and then it kept going back and forth until all of the women in the story were like pulled together so what was your favorite thing to write things in the beginning when they were more separate or things towards the end when they were all just like mishmashed my favorite thing to write actually got cut out of the book <laughs> <laughs> No, the, the whole reason I wrote the book was when I read about a riot in Philadelphia and then the riot in Edinburgh. So I wrote this huge scene of the riot in Philadelphia and then it didn't make sense in the book anymore once we, you know, the focus had changed a little bit. So where can people find you? Where can they find your book? When does it come out? Because everybody's going to want to make this cocktail and get this book and lay in the bathtub and read it and drink their cocktail. Spit out the cocktail and the outrage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, um, let's see. My book is on out on March second, and it's at Amazon. It's at all the, the usual places. Um, Target, um, Bookshop.org. Um, my local indie is Commonplace Reader, and they have it for pre-order. That's in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Um, on Twitter, I'm Libby Campbell. So, congratulations. This is your first book, right? 
Yes, it is. Thank you so much. This is so exciting. Yeah, I'm really excited for you. I cannot wait until it's available because it really, really is a beautifully written story. It's a fun read. It's an infuriating read and yet fun. <laughs> and I just, I could not promote more people to go out and get this book. And as always on this podcast, we love to remind people that well-behaved women rarely speak history. So thank you for coming, and I can't wait to talk to you again when you write another book. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye